This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today, we are honored to have with us Renee Rodriguez. He is the founder and CEO of Volentum, an enterprise education and consulting company specializing in the application of the latest brain research combined with over 30 years of experience in the areas of leadership, development, employee engagement, sales training, and professional influence. So for long-time listeners of this podcast, I have a lot, I've had a lot of guests that are very specialized in various fields of medicine, but sometimes medicine can be really theoretical. Today, we have with us someone who really understands the neuroscience of communication, influence, and leadership, and he will share with us the practical application of all the studies and research to really improve our lives. Renee, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you, just to give a little bit of background, how did you get to the pinnacle of this field that you are in right now? Where'd you start? Tell me the the Superman story, the Batman story of how you got to where you are. Sure. Well, I wish it was the pinnacle. I feel like we're just beginning. That's, I think that's what makes it so fun is the more you, the more you think you understand this, this world of the brain and how it works. And the more you realize we just don't know anything. And the more you think and you understand how leadership and influence works and communication, you realize that there's so much more to learn. And so I think that's what keeps it fun and engaging, but how I got interested in this and why, how I got to where I'm at now, it's kind of a long story. I played basketball my entire life and, um, thinking that I was going to play in the NBA, which was, you know, boy can dream. Right. And, but, um, realizing that after my second year in college, getting cut from the team, that that wasn't going to be the, the route. And I hadn't planned on school cause I hated it. I didn't like school. I didn't like, uh, studying, but I realized that, you know, I still needed to, to make it through, but I got a chance to ask a, a CEO, a question of what I needed to do to be in his shoes when I got older. I wasn't playing basketball anymore. I had discipline, I had work ethic, and I had focus, but that it was all for basketball. So I didn't know what to do. And he looked at me, smiled, and he said, okay. He goes, you learn how to sell. If you learn how to sell, you'll always be employed. And so I, I took that and ran with it. And I got this uh, thing in the mail that said, you've been selected because of your GPA to join this fast-paced uh, sales and marketing company in the health and wellness industry. And I thought, and because of my GPA, I thought, okay, well, clearly they didn't look at my GPA because it was a, at the time a 2.7. And, uh, but their mistake, I'm supposed to be in sales according to that CEO. So I'm, I'm going to go to the interview. So I went there and it was to sell cookware door to door. And I, all I knew was that I wanted to learn how to sell a difficult idea. And that came from my mother who, when I was about 17, had me look around a room and she said, Renee, what does everybody here have in common? And I looked around the room and I, I couldn't understand. I didn't understand what, you know, I was looking at skin color, I was looking at all these other things. And she said, they all have a brain. And if you understand how the brain works, life becomes easier. And so that interested me on how that one common thing that we all have, whether it's cross-culturally, whether we speak the same language, like even tonight prior to our call here, I was um, having two, three Zoom calls with people from Shanghai and Singapore and talking about how leadership transitions and, you know, translates. And the thing that we could meet on was the fact that the brain works the same no matter what language you speak. There's a lot of interpretations on that, which we can cover, but that one piece about the brain. And so I went to school for behavioral neuroscience and Hated school except that. That was something that I really loved. I gravitated towards it. And it's really what kind of kept me alive. So here I'm going to school for behavioral neuroscience. I'm in school selling cookware, $2,500 a set, learning the high-end sort of rugged real world of selling. And then I get hired to work for a change management consulting firm out of college that dealt with, that used brain research on dealing with massive scale culture change. 
And that was <clears throat> in the late nineties. And so back then, <clears throat> what was interesting was my, my, my last paper for school was on human emotion and there was nothing available. Like there was nothing. I couldn't find anything. You know, I would scour the workbooks and there'd be, you know, a few studies here and a few studies there. And there was very little on leadership. I mean, you couldn't find anything on emotional intelligence because it wasn't even around. It wasn't even a thing really. Well, actually 95, it was when it came out. But even that was, <clears throat> was very hard to, to, to find anything. That's why it was so groundbreaking. And back then it was just something that really wasn't understood. And so I took that um, sort of journey to say, okay, how do I help people understand this thing, the brain, human emotion, relationships, communication in a world, in a business environment that people didn't want to talk about it and they didn't really feel the need to. The back then the promise was lifetime employment with organizations. You work with one organization for the whole life and most people died close to where they worked. That is not the case anymore. But what it did for me was it helped me talk about the quote unquote soft skill, if you will, on body language, um, interpreting somebody's facial expressions to posture, to tone of voice, to the sequence of how people talk and you know, the way that we communicate. And I'll give you some examples here in a minute. But all of that, it taught me how to talk about it in the most difficult environment when people weren't ready. And so now doing that for 27 years, what I've gravitated towards is <clears throat> that leadership is not about uh, quotes and inspiration and uh, platitudes that typically sort of is reduced down to. It's a very frustrating conversation for me. But leadership is about influence. And I, I had these people on the call tonight and I said, okay, ask them to define influence and we get all sorts of definitions. And I said, okay, well imagine a leader that isn't influential, has no influence, are they still a leader? And they kind of stop and they go, well, that kind of cuts to the chase, doesn't it? It does, influence is about leadership. It's the how of leadership. And so that's what gravitated to me. And so now we use that the science of influence, the science of communication, persuasion, um, storytelling, body language, sequencing micro expressions, facial expressions, all those things to be able to help leaders become more effective in how they communicate. Now that translates to, to, to parents, it translates into teachers, to um, doctors. I mean, I've worked with so many doctors in you know, communicating, you know, even dentists and orthodontists on how do they communicate. So it really translates to everybody. That's sort of the, the short version of it. So, you you unpacked a lot there. So there are levels to communication and there, the first one is just communicating your point across. And then after that, you talked about influencing other people. And then at the end, you talked about actually leading other people. So let's start at the beginning. When you, how do you define communication and what would you, how would you characterize successful versus not successful communication? That's a, that's a loaded question. Successful versus unsuccessful. <clears throat> so I think that re that requires a couple different things. Um, what we teach people is to have what's called an influence objective. And so if I'm communicating something to you, I have to first ask myself, who's my audience? Like who, who am I speaking to? That's an overlooked question because I think people take it for granted. Well, they, they go by who's my audience based on the title. Well, I've got CEOs or I've got teachers or I've got uh, a group of coaches or I've got you know, whoever, but an audience question goes further than that. It's like, who are they? What are they feeling? What are they going through? What are the things that keep them up at night? What are the challenges in the marketplace that they're facing right now? And what emotional challenges are they facing? You know, then people say, well, there's no emotional challenges. Well, every human has that. So let's keep that real. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's excitement. Maybe it's uh, massive change. Maybe somehow they're being affected by the supply chain or interest rates or the housing shortage, who knows? But if I understand that, then I go, okay, What's my influence objective? What am I trying to influence and communicate? And so if I'm clear on those two pieces, then I have something by which to measure if I am influencing towards that objective or not. And so a lot of times people will just talk and they think that emotional connection is influence. It's not. It's the precursor to it though. It's needed for it, but it's but too, people, too many people stop at emotional connection and they don't take the emotional connection to say, here's what that means to us and what we need to do next, which is where the influence happens. And also that's actually where value is created. 
we've seen keynote speakers and inspirational, motivational speakers, and they move us with great stories and we're moved emotionally. Wow. And then we go right back to where we were before because we don't know what to do with that emotion. Influence and good communication is about saying, how do we bring that emotion up and then focus it like a laser towards a behavior of some sort, towards something we're trying to do. So like, for example, I think what you're, the purpose of your podcast, which I loved by the way, which is taking a lot of the science of the medical field and bringing it to light, the stuff that you know maybe isn't always talked about. Because you said a lot of the people that really have the good science kind of avoid social media. <clears throat> and so you're trying to influence people to think differently and think beyond what they see on social media. Is that correct? That's totally correct. Um, the, what I have found is the people that are really phenomenal at what they do, they are, they're not the best at publicizing it or communicating it because that's not their focus. Their focus is being a world-class cancer doctor or orthopedic surgeon. And their, their focus is not, how do I tell everyone about what I'm doing? So really the only way to access these people is if you already know about them and then you go about access, accessing them. But the interesting thing is once you reach out to them, they're very open with, <clears throat> with um, really fantastic paradigm shifting thought processes. It's fascinating. It's self-promotion is a, is a topic that, that I've talked a lot about and you're absolutely right. The self-promotion to the, to the, to the intellectual, to the academic, it can feel boastful. It can feel lesser than in some ways, you know, I, why I don't need to sell myself. The information should sell itself. <laughs> and unfortunately that's just not the case in today's world. And I, and I'm, I takes one to know one, by the way, like I, I only embraced the concept of branding about three and a half years ago, four years ago. And the dramatic impact change that that had on our business was it's incalculable, but I get it. You're, you're, why would I want to, if, I mean, if, if, the, if I function from a logical perspective, which is where the big mistake is, you know, information should sell itself. I mean, this is logical. And if I have the best data and the best content and this is what it is, then it should speak for itself. And unfortunately it doesn't think of how many mediocre ideas take flight. Think of how many cliche platitudes get the million likes. It's all simple syrup, simple sugars and people like it. And you know, it's the fast food of content, but for some reason it takes flight. And that has been, oh my gosh, the bane of my existence watching that. But then at some point, you know, I was frustrated, but at some point I said, okay, I have to stop being frustrated by it and start engaging in this new world. And maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Maybe I'm the one that says, okay, maybe there's a way to do both. And that's what I've been discovering and, and, and quite frankly, still in the process of searching and discovering. So let me ask you this. Um, is there a time that say you fumbled a little bit, you were doing, you're trying to communicate with someone and then you fumbled the communication and then you realized this is what I was doing and this is a great learning point and then you fixed it and then you solved the problem. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> you know, not everybody's going to give you the chance to fix it. That's part of the challenge. <laughs> and that's a great um, question because how do you go back then? And if you fumble it, how do you, how do you attempt to prepare that? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, self-awareness is the number one skill that we teach. It's the first thing we start with. If you, if you don't have self-awareness or if you think that you are self-aware, that's the challenge. People, you know, a lot of people think they're self-aware where only like, you know, they think it's like two in 10 actually are self-aware. And so there's a, there's a big misconception on that. And so one, having the self-awareness to say, okay, I flubbed that one. I really messed that one up. And depending on how emotional it is and who you're dealing with and their level of emotional intelligence, you may not be able to bring that one back. You know, there's some people who say, nope, you said it. That's how I feel. And no, now I know how you really feel. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And what we have come to find out, and we have a, a course that we teach called Engage. And one of the tools that we teach in there is, is a tool around four emotions. There are five human emotions, mad, sad, glad, scared, and disgust. You can make the case for a few others, but we try to keep to four, mad, sad, glad, and scared. So those are four primary emotions that really everybody understands no matter what language you speak, no matter where you're at. They've done studies to prove that people that have no contact with the Western world still understand those four emotions. And so we try to keep it to those four. And then we try to incorporate a, a, a tool that we, you know, that would be a repeating back. So yeah, you've heard of the limbic system. The limbic mm -hmm. system is the part of the brain that is really 
where human emotion comes into play. Our value centers are located there and uh, it's the gateway to long-term memory. So that plays a very important part in communicating. And it also asks a question of, do you care about me? You know, do we connect from a values perspective? And if we don't, then it's hard for me, the brain to go any further to, to build trust. But the limbic system is also known as an open loop system. The, what we call the reptilian brain or the basal ganglia, sort of the more primitive side of who we are, is a closed loop system. It's self-regulating. You don't need permission to beat your heart or, or digest your food. It just happens. You can give me a dirty look, but I'm still going to breathe. These are all autonomic, automatic functions. But the limbic system is an open loop system, meaning it, it requires connection to the, out, to the world outside of me. I have, you know, if I smile and you smile back, I can feel something. If you smile and, and give me the finger, then I'm like, wait, what, what happened? So how you close the loop with me has an impact on me. It's a trait known that the mammal mammals have versus reptiles. Reptiles don't care about the external world. They don't bond. They don't go in herds. Imagine if a herd of reptiles came after you. How scary would that be? Reptiles are always by themselves. You see one, you're okay, cool. There's one alligator. But imagine if there was a pack that they learned how to hunt together. How incredibly scary. Oh, sure. Be. Of course. That'd be very scary. Right. And it seems unheard of, right? Because we just accept that reptiles are that way. But mammals, they're, they pack and they herd, right? They flock. And they all come together because they have the need for the, the connection with something else. And humans have that same need. Dogs. You pet a dog, it smiles at you, basically. It wags its tail. You can tell that it's happy. And so we incorporate that. That's the science behind why we, we think one of the most important phrases is, what I heard you say was, and repeating back with the question at the end, am I correct? And here's, here's why that am I correct part. It allows the other person to say no. And that's the key. Because there's sometimes I, I say something and the person says, okay, here's what I heard you say. And I go, wow, that sounded like, that didn't sound real nice what I said. And I go, you know what? That's what I said, but it's not what I meant. If you might, may I say it again? The person goes, yeah, sure, no problem. That, just that little that sequence there gives the other person the ability to let it go and go, okay, try it again. Because they have a little bit more empathy because typically they've also tried communicating something and they didn't do it well. And they go, yeah, well, I, I would want that chance back. So let me give you a chance back. And until the person, you know, the rules have been established, hey, until I say, yes, that's correct, it, it doesn't connect. And because somebody might say something, well, what I heard you say was, you think I'm stupid at this? And I said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Let me rephrase that. What I'm saying is this, is that I don't feel you put enough thought into this because there's more involved. And I'm going to take ownership for not sharing that with you. Ah, totally different message. And that's what I meant to communicate. And it allows two people to be able to do that. But that assumes a lot, that they've both been, both been trained in it and they both have the emotional intelligence, I'll say that again, to be able to engage in that. And that's why I think training is so critical in something like this. But um, yeah, it's a kind of a long answer to that. But even if somebody hasn't been trained, can you use the tool? Yeah, here's what I'm hearing you say. What I'm hearing you say is this. Is this really what your podcast is about? I, mean, I kind of did it with you. I repeated back what I understood the podcast to be about and you immediately affirmed that that's exactly what it's about. And what that I could argue is that your enthusiasm that went up was because your limbic system felt like validated, right? It felt like, oh, he gets me, right? Imagine if I would have said, okay, what I'm hearing you say is that your, your, your podcast is about bringing the hocus pocus of, of science out. Is that, of, of, you'd be like, no, 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 that's not what it's about. No, 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 let me explain. Now you'd feel the need to have to f fix it, but you'd also feel like, man, this guy wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's the, the deep connection that happens when we can close the loop with people to help them feel validated and help them feel heard. I think that's a great point that you bring up really. And I think that's a great technique to, that's like, that's an actionable thing that people can do. And I'm sure if you actually get training with it, um, there's a whole skill set that you can unlock, but that's a quick actionable thing that you've taught. Um, you, you had a really good point where you said that maybe two out of 10 people really have insight and are into their um, emotional state or emotional intelligence. How do you, because everyone's going to think that they have, it seems like most people are, or pretty much most people will think that they have um, insight into, or, or they have a high emotional intelligence. What are some of the things that you can do to self-assess yourself as to your level of emotional intelligence? And then what are some of the steps that you can do to improve it regardless of what your score is? So when we're talking about emotional intelligence, it's it, it kind of important to define it first, right? And so uh, uh, emotional intelligence really has three factors. One is the ability to 
understand how am I feeling? That's a, that's a self-awareness piece, right? So there's a skill set of self-awareness is critical. How am I feeling? Am I upset? Well, you know, right now I'm, I'm scared. Like somebody, if they can't admit that they're scared, there's a big gap there of self-awareness. Well, I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm like, well, okay. Well, we all know you are. <laughs> You're just not willing to say that, you know, and for whatever cultural reason that you think that that shows weakness, that's on you. I don't, don't know, but whatever. But self-awareness, here's how I'm feeling. Second is empathy to understand how somebody else is feeling. Okay, so, and it's to be able to dissect. So, okay, how is this other person feeling right now? Okay, they're they're scared. They're feeling defensive. Okay, what's going on? Okay, they feel threatened or whatever it is. So I know how I'm feeling. I know how they're feeling. And third is the skill set to be able to adjust the emotional intelligence, right? To be able to adjust how I'm feeling to best meet them where they're at so that we can have the most effective communication, the most effective engagement. And so... <clears throat> In, in, in my book, we talk a lot about how to grow self-awareness and, and, and emotional intelligence. In fact, that we, uh, we go into detail about how to do that. And it's, it's not an easy conversation to have in terms of, you know, how to approach it and, and, and how to deal with it. Because so many, you know, it's, it's, it can be seen as something that is, it can be seen as something that is touchy-feely in a lot of ways. But the best leaders are the ones that are able to connect best with their people. Can you give me some examples of leaders that can really connect with their, or the techniques leaders will use to connect with the people that they're trying to lead. And then some examples of leaders that fumble and why they're fumbling. So examples of leaders that do well at connecting. That's a good question. Leaders that do well at connecting, you know, um, I like that question and I want to, I'm, I'm silent because I really want to think about that for a minute in terms of, cause the, the, the word connecting can mean so many different things. You know, the, it, it's like, what kind of culture do I have? And, but a, there, there's, there's a, there's a fine line between, um, you know, connecting, creating culture and truly being able to do that. But I think a leader that shows self-awareness and shows empathy are the ones that are able to connect at the deepest level. And you'll know the, those because they're usually also the best storytellers. They're the ones that show a level of vulnerability. And vulnerability is one of the pieces that, that I think is, is lacking pretty heavily in today's world, especially at a leadership perspective, that when, you know, the concept is, you know, a lion doesn't need to roar, right? You know it's a lion. And I tell that to leaders all the time. I'm like, okay, we know your CEO. We get it. We all know the business card. We all know you paid for this. We all know you're the top, top dog. Why are you still roaring? And roaring could be, you know, showing displays of power. Um, you know, yelling could be chastising versus just listening. And I think in that sense, imagine, you know, I always tell people, and like truly imagine right now if a lion walked in, would you have any doubt that it could kill you? You'd have zero doubt. Yeah, does it need to roar? You'd be like, no, I get it, dude. You're a lion. <laughs> you could eat me alive. But what if that lion came in and sat next to you and gave you a big lick in the face and you know rubbed its head up against you? You'd be like, oh my God, this is the coolest freaking lion I've ever met. And it just kind of sat there and sat in your lap and you realize that this powerful beast could destroy anything it wants. It just doesn't though. And so there's almost a stronger connection there. And so <clears throat> when powerful leaders are able to listen first, it shows such a sign of strength. And it, we call it the paradox of leadership that vulnerability and listening, those types of skill sets in the act can feel weak, but in the perceived, in the perception of it, it is the greatest show of strength. And so the way I feel when I'm vulnerable is weak and exposed, but the way people perceive me is more powerful. And there's a deeper connection, higher levels of respect. And so, it's the paradox is fascinating. And so I think the best leaders are the ones that can be vulnerable and they can listen to what's going on. And this doesn't mean that they're, they're passive. No, they set clear boundaries. There's clarity of where out of bounds are, what success looks like, what it doesn't look like the vision where we're going, but in that they're able to listen. And I think that's probably the most effective ones. Let's take, and there's a reason I'm choosing him. Let's take Elon Musk as a case study. Okay. So um, he's, he's public about him being um, 
having Asperger's. So he has a huge. Oh, he is public about that. He is public about that. Very um, cool. He came out on Saturday Night Live about it. And so that. that, sorry. I said, I love that he came out about that. So he um, talked about that, which, which was a kind of a neat thing. And he, he's grown tremendous, huge growth in his companies, but he has this huge disadvantage because it's hard for him to read people. Right. So how would you rate him then or analyze him strengths and weaknesses as a leader? You know, I'd say a couple of things. One is I'd say that, you know, I, and I challenge people to do that is you look at that and he's a one in a billion, right? Maybe one in 10 billion. He's a Steve Jobs. He's a Winston Churchill. He's a, um, those, those such rare cases that are thinking so far ahead of the rest of us that, you know, is that who we want to model? Somebody once told me, he said, Renee, you can't build companies with superstars. I was like, why? He goes, there's just not enough of them. I'm like, interesting. Okay, that's interesting. So how do I build with the regular folk like us? The ones that have- Wait, I have a question about that then. Um, You could make the argument that you can build a company with superstars. You just have them lead. Because it's better to have a lion lead a bunch of sheep than a sheep lead a bunch of lions. Because then you go nowhere. Yeah, it could be that. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. And, and it's, it's a concept of, of, you know, how do we define superstar, right? Because I think that the job of the leader is to, to help people see their, their, their talent and their skill. Because there, there are people that thrive under certain levels of leadership and certain styles of leadership that just, that just thrive. And those same people in different environments fall to, fall, fall to pieces. And so, you know, but I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sk- skating away from your question. I think Elon is, is, I mean, obviously he's brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, his brain capacity and how he thinks is amazing. And I think that, you know, but you're studying somebody who, who is, if he is diagnosed with Asperger, so that's a, it's a, that's a rare person, highly functioning Asperger, right? And somebody who is a level of brilliance that is somebody else. So what you'll find with like the Steve Jobs and those guys, they're very difficult to work for. They're difficult to work for because the level of expectations, the amount of hours they put in isn't normal. And you, you know, a lot of times you, you'll look at this very small substrate of data of the hyper successful individual who's willing to give up their life, work 80, 90 hours a week. They're willing to sacrifice family time. They're willing to sacrifice so many things that one, it wouldn't be sustainable for the whole world to do. And so people are like, well, I want to earn that kind of money. I was like, well, do you want to do what they're doing though? And it's at what expense? Even myself, man, FEMA, whatever, are you willing to give up all of the things and the time you have with your kids, which by the way, is really super important, really, really critical. But are you willing to give all that up to hyper-focus on one thing for a long time to be one of the best in the world? Some are. But it's a very small group of individuals that are willing to do that. And so I always caution people to, to, to just caution the comparisons. You know, how do we look at what is it you actually want? And then find that leader that's doing that. Now, can I learn things from Elon? Yes, I love his thoughtfulness. Like you'll ask him, he he's gets asked a question, he'll sometimes sit there in silence for a minute. And it was him and Steve Jobs that really taught me that silence and thinking are okay in interviews and questions and in conversation. Now, what they don't do is they don't tell people that that's what they're doing. They're just thinking. You watch Steve Jobs, it was infamous question. He got a really tough question from the audience and he just sat there for almost a minute and a half and the person was prodding at him and he goes, I don't think you're wrong. And I think the way we got there was this. And he really, I mean, it would just show that he really put thought into that question, into his answer. And Elon's the same way. They'll ask a question, he'll just, you can see his brain processing and then he'll come up with a really thoughtful answer. And I think that's really valuable. And we try to teach people that just to not feel like you have to immediately blurt out an answer. So I think that there's, there's a lot of things that you can learn from that, but then I think you go, okay, so what are the leaders that we really admire and how do we admire them? Do we admire their family structure? Cause there are leaders that I admire their business, but I don't want anything of how they do with their, with their families. I know people that have amazing families, but they, I wouldn't really model my, my leadership behavior after them. And then there are the few that really have both. 
but that's all dependent and subjective to what I consider to be valuable. Does that make sense? Kind of. Challenge. Let's let's talk. I mean, this is good. Kind this of. is good. I like that. It's this kind is a thought provoking question for me too. So, I think he had, Elon specifically. Elon Musk is specifically interesting because, and I, he falls into this Steve Jobs category. And I know the quote that where you're talking about, where Steve Jobs was speaking to the audience, and then someone asked him and challenged him and said, "You're doing all these great things, but isn't this different programming system better?" And I thought that it was very empathic of him to really stop, pause, and consider what the person's saying because the person really in the audience has no real significance compared to Steve Jobs. Right. The fact that he would really think about what he was saying made him feel heard. And he didn't disagree with him. He actually agreed with him and said, well, exactly like you discussed the um, that closed loop communication and said, so this is what you're saying. He repeated it. And I'm sure to the audience members, surprise, he agreed with him and said, no, you're right. You're right about everything you're saying. So he felt heard. He wasn't on the defensive. And then Steve Jobs then went on to explain why he was doing what he was doing. So he, I felt that he connected with the audience member while getting and winning over the audience because he didn't exactly like you said, he wasn't this roaring lion because he could have been. He could have just said, right. you're an idiot. I'm the CEO. So do what I say. He came in and basically licked the guy's face metaphorically and said, I'll humor you and really think about what you've said. But this is why. And he gave an answer in such a gentle way that it was yeah. clear why he was the CEO of that company and why yeah. it was growing. Yeah. And we're talking about the answer. That's the yes. beauty of it. I mean, years after he's died. Yeah. That's impact. And that's influence. So Elon Musk is interesting to me because he has Asperger's. So he has a huge disadvantage about understanding other people. Yet he can still have people work themselves almost to death for him and his vision. So he's communicated his vision and he has influenced people to follow him. Because there are other companies that would pay what he's paying. There are other companies that don't require nearly the work ethic that he has. Because everything you said, I agree with that people with Asperger's tend to drive really, really hard and they don't have a lot of empathy, but he still managed to get people to follow him despite having that um, condition Asperger's for anyone who's familiar. People with Asperger's have a huge difficulty emotionally connecting with people, yet Elon Musk has managed to overcome that. I don't know how well he does on a one-on-one -on -one situation, but at least in the talks that he's given, he clearly is connecting with people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, his, there, I mean, I think let's dissect that a little bit deeper because I could argue to say, is it, is it Elon or is, is his vision what they're, what they're connecting with? Right. And I think that's even more powerful. I mean, Martin Luther King had 250,000 people show up, but none of them showed up for him. They showed up for something they believed that he talked about, the dream. And so he was really able to talk about this dream because when Dr. King died, the dream carried on. And if if Elon is able to say, you know, so he, we, we, he believes we, we need to be in Mars. He believes all sorts of crazy things. I mean, he thinks that we're not having enough babies and we're going to reach a point in time if we don't continue to procreate, we're, we're going to be, it's going to be irreversible. And so there's, I mean, his thinking is, I mean, I, what's who's the other guy that just passed away that, um, Hawking's. Um, Stephen Hawkins, Hawkins, Hawking, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know th these thoughts that are so inconceivable to us, but it's able to create such innovation and disruption. You know, PayPal to Tesla, SpaceX. You know that whatever he's doing next is going to have this piece. And so, am I working for for Elon, or am I working for the idea of this disruption, this idea of? innovation and the next big thing and being part of something that's sexy like that. And, um, and I don't know, I think it's, it's, he's iconic. So who wouldn't want to be around that? But then I go, okay, how do you become like Elon? And, and most leaders would be like, cause if I try to say, what's the takeaway from that? There isn't any, I'm not like him. And most people aren't. So I go, okay, how do we dissect that to a takeaway? How do I dissect that to a takeaway? You know, maybe I think you pointed one out. Maybe it's that he's, even with a, you know, a disability, I don't even, I'm not even saying that correctly, but with a challenge of Asperger's where you are designed to, to be less empathetic, 
to maybe he intellectualized his way into saying, because I've seen that, that I need to learn how to be. And so they kind of backwards into the, the intellect is so smart that they can almost back, back end into the emotional connection. And, but is it an emotional connection or is it a robotic one that's saying the right words? I don't know. I don't know them. But I think that there is a lot that still can be learned, but can I emulate it? I don't know. Let me ask you this. Tough one. Can you separate when people are really driven for a particular goal? Can you separate them from the vision? Because I would argue that some people, they are the vision. Martin Luther King, his vision and who he was are the same. So while they're following the vision, they're also following Martin Luther King. Elon Musk, they're following him to lead, but he also is the vision. They're the, kind of the, they're the exact same thing. And that's why if Elon points or Martin Luther King or certain people of that caliber point a certain way, that's what they follow. But the people like Elon Musk, et cetera, that's why they sacrifice family life, friends, et cetera, because in their minds, their vision and them are the same thing. I would think that they, that, that they feel that way, that there is no disconnect between them, right? That in that, but then the only argument is when they die, does the vision continue? Then it carries on a life of its own, right? So that there was a, you know, it was, it was the, the dream that people really kept, you know, that they bought into. And even the story goes that when he was, when Dr. King did his, uh, you know, the, I have a dream speech mm -hmm. <clears throat> that he wasn't a very organized person, but because they believed in the dream, the people who were organized showed up and they said, well, we're probably gonna have to get bus lines and water stands and, you know, how are we going to do cleanup? Well, I want to get these people. Why have the connections over here? Because they believed in the vision of what was going on. And when he died, it carried on. And so, but I think the individual that, that I, that icon, that person that is the visionary probably, I think to your point, probably doesn't see much, much disconnect or much distance between them and the vision. They, they, they embody it in so many things that they believe and, and feel and but again, I, this is, remember I told you I'm the applied side of this. So for the implied science, mean? so the, what does that mean in, to me? so in the applied science, then, um, can you apply that thought or do you have any ideas of how you could apply that to a day-to-day -day world? Do I, so the things that are applicable to me mm -hmm. are having a vision. Okay. One. That is, I think we all need that. Vision casts, casts the opportunity of possibility. I think vision opens the mind. Um, what I believe about reality, if you want to get into um, how we construct reality, the difference between social realities and physical reality. Okay, wait, I'm going to ask you then, we, we were just talking about a lot of theoretical stuff. And um, if my significant other, my wife listens to this podcast, she'll say, why are you babbling? Which, <laughs> which is, I would say is probably true. So I'm going to ask you like a very applicable thought to, or uh, let's, let's get like really practical. So the practical application <laughs> is let's say you have, this is going to be super practical. You have a couple and you have partner a that wants to move and do something. And the other partner, that's not their natural inclination to do whatever this thing happens to be involving the family. So how do you apply all of these things that we've been philosophizing about to a very, because everyone I think can relate to this. You have a partner that wants their other partner and their family to move in a certain direction to do a given thing, whatever that thing happens to be. If you're advising that partner, partner A, how to move the family, what, like, what would you do? God, that's a deep question. I mean, there's so many ways to approach that and so many questions I have. So I'm, you I can would, ask whatever you want. I can, to narrow down. Yeah, that's so, totally so, fine. so let's get a little more specific. When you say okay. move, you, what you, let's, let's, give, let's, let's make it real tangible. Okay. Um, okay. Let's say, <clears throat> let's say you have partner A that just likes academic things. They like school and that's all they want to do. And partner B just likes, um, so one partner likes just academic things. The other partner likes just socializing and sports, et cetera. How do they come together to raise the children in some sort of meaningful way? Or say one partner wants to go on vacation to a certain place and the other one doesn't. Or say one partner wants to eat healthy and the other partner doesn't. Or one part, actually, this is, really, this is a really practical one. Let's say 
both the entire family has not been healthy. And then one partner gets on a health kick and they're like, we are going to be a healthy family. And the other partner is like, no, I like eating not healthy food and sitting around not doing anything. Partner A knows it's best for the family. Everyone knows it's best for the family, but it's easy to not do anything. So how, how does the healthy person influence the rest of the family to move in a healthy direction? All right. Well, let's identify the audience first. So I would venture, let's say it's, you know, uh, the me, the husband trying to get the wife and then the children to follow. And so at that point, you know, I, you know, divide and conquer is the best approach and something like that. Right. And so the intellect and the intellectual intellectualization of that process is going to be different from the kids to the, the mom. And I think it's, it's one getting rid of the idea of, I need to manipulate the situation. And moreover, how do I align with my spouse on what our goals are? Right. And so, cause really the moment that the spouse doesn't feel heard, doesn't feel a part of it, doesn't, it feels like they're trying to be manipulated. The conversation's over. And so creating what we call psychological safety is first. Now changing someone's diet is one of the quickest ways to create the lack of feeling not safe <laughs> and massive amounts of stress. If you it's like eating certain things and saying, all of a sudden we're not going to eat that unless you selected into that, that's a difficult proposition. So you have to understand that creating safety is first. And so for me, it's a conversation of saying, look, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm feeling. And this is what scares me. If I don't get a grip of this now, this is where we're going to find ourselves. And I need to ask you, do you believe any of those things? And do you agree? And beginning an alignment on, do you agree that there's a problem? Because what we call the problem definition frame is really trying to come from the same frame of reference here. And so to me, if I can't define the problem and we can't agree on that there's a problem, then what, what, what solution matters? There is no problem. What, why are you giving me a solution? But if I can really agree that there's a problem and we go, okay, yeah, that's right. We go, well, so wait, let me, let me jump in right there. I think that's a great, if you don't mind me just ask, please, diving please. into that. So I think that's a great question because one person sees a problem. Other person thinks this is fine because this is how all my friends are. This is how my families are. So how do you really create that shift to even identify that there's a problem in the first place? Well, that's, that's the approach is you got to be able to say, here's how I see it. Number one, here's how it makes me feel. And usually if there's a problem, the fear the usually the feeling is fear. Usually. Now this is also assuming you have a partner that's okay with you saying, I'm scared about something. Some partners, and this goes a whole nother conversation, a whole uh, <laughs> can of worms is you know, a lot of partnerships don't allow that word of I'm scared into it. You know, some women will see men as being weak if they say that. And yet they want men to be sensitive. And some men see themselves as weak for saying something like that. And yet they feel like they're not being heard. So so actually that's a really interesting topic that you you brought up. If you want to expand on that a little bit more, I think a lot of people would find that really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. I think that, you know, there's, you've, you've got, and it can be touchy. You know, there's, there's a lot, men and women are, especially right now, I think in a very interesting phase of trying to figure out what does being a man mean? What does being a woman mean? And you've got a lot of men being, trying to be more feminine, a lot of women trying to be more masculine and their, their masculine and feminine traits are critical and they play in such important roles and men should be in touch with the feminine side of things. They should understand the feminine qualities and and the masculine qualities, but they can't lose sight of the fact that they're men. And this isn't a chauvinistic comment. This is about the fact that we are built physically different. We think physically different. We're hormonally different. We're different on so many aspects and that's an okay thing. Women are physically different, hormonally different. And there's, there's so many different things that are there. Now that doesn't mean that we're also alike in so many different ways. We're so, well, there's so much of this alike, but if you look at the extremes, the extremes are very different, but the mid, the, all the stuff in the middle is very much the same, but sometimes the extremes are what sort of tend to dominate. And so you, you look at that and say, okay, you want your man to be more sensitive, but then same person says, oh, you get the man flu. <laughs> okay. So there's a contradiction of what's going on and, and what I would call teleopathy, a conflicting goal. And it, this isn't, you know, the, 
you know, men want women to be a certain way, but then they act that way and they don't want, they don't want them to be that way. We, we, we have this conflict in all of that. They can create that. That's why when we talk about saying, okay, I feel scared in 27 years, the first thing we have had to address is we got to make it safe to say I'm scared first before any of this even matters. And if it's not safe, then the strategy doesn't even work, right? Because then that's just going to pull you down a different path. But assuming that's the case, you can say, here's, I'm worried that if we don't get a grip of this, we're going to die early. And that's a whole nother problem because even talking about dying early, we go into uh, denial about that. More, life is morbid. And if we actually truly thought about the, 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 how morbid life is, we wouldn't be able to function. So we're designed to be <clears throat> in denial of it. But I'm scared that we're going to go to our vacation and we're going to be unhappy when we go swimming. You know, that's a stressful situation for me. And I just want to be healthier. And, you know, so do you even think that we should try to be healthier? If they say, no, I'm good where, I'm good where we are. Well, what good is a solution at that point? So it's what do you do at that point? Resistance. You've, you've empathized, you've, did, you've done the closed loop communication. You said, I'm scared. You've communicated that. And they're like, you can be healthy. I'm going to stay here just the way I am. <laughs> and so I'm good. then there's, a, there's a tough choice. You, to me, there's also a, a strength in saying, okay, well, I'm going to take this path. And I really wish you would join me. And you do it without apology and you do it without guilt and you do it without shaming them either, but you do it by leading by example. And if you do it in a safe way, because the, here's what I've come to find out. If you, the best way to allow change to happen is you allow people to save face in the process. Here's what I mean. If I were to say, all right, well, I'm going to do it and you're going to regret it. You're going to come crawling back and start working out with me. Now you just set the tone that person has to admit they were wrong for them to join you. And guess what the likelihood of people wanting to admit they're wrong is not likely, but if you say, okay, that's fair. And babe, you look fantastic. Anyways, I know I need to do it for myself. I want to maintain, I want to look good for you. So you look fantastic. I was just hoping you, you could join me. So we do it together, but Hey, no, no big deal. I'll catch up to you. And I run after it and I go hard. Now, if she wants to join me, she can without having to say she was wrong, without having to say anything. In fact, when she joins, it's like, oh, this is cool. But so many people set it up for failure by making it seem like making it so that they have to come between their tail between their legs. If your goal is to be right or to win, then that's the approach. Or if your goal is alignment, then you need to remove that whole piece. And so sometimes we have to change what the goal is. I'd much rather be aligned than win. So what about the flip side of you have a boss who needs the employees to do a certain thing. Like you need to work a couple of extra hours on the weekend, et cetera. And I think right now it's rampant in social media where it's hard to get everyone's hiring. They're not enough people to work. And there's this quit culture where people are saying, you know what? The boss asked me to stay late. I don't want to stay late. I get another job. I quit. I'm walking the end. Let's say you're the boss of a small business and you're, you really need your employees to step up because a couple of people have quit. How do you tie in all the things that we've talked about, the, the Elon Musk strategy, the empathize with your spouse strategy, how, or maybe there's a new strategy. How do you get your employees to put in the extra hours? And let's put the constraint on it of your limited funds, your, let, let's say a restaurant or some sort of business where you can't pay them more, but you need them to really work a little bit harder for you. In the context of people don't expect to be working for the same job forever. It's a different, different time. How would you advise that business owner? Well, the time to start doing that level of influence would have been two, three months earlier. <laughs> That's a great answer. Right? That's a good answer. So the, you know, if, if I have been, um, if I had been a, a manager who listened and I had been somebody who took an interest in my people and I had been somebody who, um, had gone above and beyond done happy hours, done the things that show that I really do care. Then that conversation is as simple as saying, Hey, I need you Tuesday. And it's there. But if I haven't done anything, I haven't earned any of that equity with the relationship, then you're, you've got a hurdle to cover and a hurdle to climb to be able to say, okay, how do I recreate this? And the, the tough part is in today's market, people do know when you're doing that, they know like, okay, what do they want? I mean, we know when our kids come at us and they're super nice and like, Hey dad, you know, want me to help you with this? I'm like, 
what, what, what do you need? <laughs> and we know that. And it's like, you, you, you've got to start thinking about that before you need it. What do they say? Dig your, dig your well before you're thirsty. And that's, that happens in leadership too. But you know, and let's say it's one of those things that you didn't get a chance to do that. Then you have to acknowledge the, 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 the truth. I'd come to them and say, look, these last few months, I know it's been tough. And I know that I probably should have started this conversation before. And I messed up. I own that. Take ownership over the fact that you didn't do that. So I'm finding myself in a position where I really need you. And I probably haven't shown that in the last few months. And that's my fault. And I need to change that. And so one, I want to own it. And two, I do need to ask you to help. And so there's a lot to be said there. One is taking ownership over something. It's my fault in the beginning. And if it is, if you haven't done it, then it is. Own it. You're still the boss. You're still the leader. I can still fire you. But that doesn't mean that I, we, we don't have a, a relationship that we should build within this relationship where I could fire you, but you could also quit so that we both are holding a, a, a card here. And if I do need you, then I want to be a very good choice as an employer. And I also know that the happier you, you, happier you are, the better our relationship, the better you're going to treat customers. Because the way you treat customers is a reflection of how you're treated at the, in, the, in the workplace. You know, Four Seasons has a, has a great, is one of the, my favorite stories around that. And it's known that a lot of times in the Four Seasons when they build one, a new one, they build two of them. One in the front that faces customers and one in the back that's a replica. And the one in the back is used for training. And who stays there is the, the staff that's being trained for 30 days. And they're served by the graduating class for 30 days. So imagine you going to train for Four Seasons and you get three meals a day, your bed turned down, you get the same concierge service. You get the same exact treatment that a, that a customer would get. And you leave there 30 days. How are you feeling? You're feeling ready to serve. I mean, you are ready to serve. And that sort of analogy, that concept is saying, okay, you want, you want to increase customer service, then treat your people better. And so same would be true. If, I've, if I want that, then I better start treating people that way before I need them. And then it's just easy. And they probably would have seen it before I needed. Hey, I saw somebody quit. Don't worry. Uh, I'm going to show up. And you watch people take over. And you watch people step up. That's, that's the definition of an engaged employee. So to tie this back into, you talked about how, let's say 20% of people really have insight into what, what their strengths are, weaknesses are, and really have that self-awareness. Now, as a business leader, you've, let's just say someone's a business leader and they have um, grown this company and they've taken all the risk and they have these employees. And sometimes they forget that the employees are not the owners and they're not going to lead for this company because they don't own it. They work there. Yep. Now, um, how, let, let's say someone is a business owner and they're running this business. And they're just not aware of their blind spots. That's where I think the value of a consultant like yourself comes in and says, here are your blind spots. This is what you're missing. What would that process look like? You're asking somebody give them feedback? Let's say I'm a business owner. I have X number of employees. Business is going good, but I know it could be better. But I just don't know what my blind spots are. Can someone consult with you to say how about you come in, assess my business, and how do I get it to the next level? How do I implement, other than reading your book, um, and I'll, I'll discuss your book, Amplifying Your Influence. How do I, as a leader, really to quote your book, amplify your influence and take your business to the next level? So am I the consultant now? You're the consultant. So let's say I'm the business leader. So I'm the business leader, and I'm saying, Renee, come in. I've heard this podcast. I've read your book. But there's a difference between reading a book and having you in mm -hmm. person with your wealth of information. How do you take that business leader to the next level? What would the steps be in that interaction? So there's a couple of different things that go into it. One, if you've been hired, so that's a big win already. They have identified you of all their choices as the person that is qualified to give that advice. And so right there, you've been op you've opted in and they've opted you in to saying, I trust you to give me feedback. Try doing that in a place where nobody asked for it. 
that is, you know, people will tell me all the time, say, Renee, are you analyzing what I'm saying? I'm like, no, why would I be doing that? You didn't ask me to. That sounds boring. Like, why would I sit there and analyze somebody and their posture and their body language and the sequencing and, and the whole, why would I do that? Unless you haven't, one, it's rude and I feel it's intrusive. But if you've asked me to, then there's this concept called ethos. And we talk a lot about Aristotle, ethos, pathos, logos, kairos, telos. Those are the first three are his, his, his rhetorical triangle and how we communicate. And what he says is, is you have to have ethos, which is your credibility, your character. If you don't have ethos, then it's really difficult for you to give advice. For example, if I were to do a workshop on the menstrual cycle and the ups and downs women face, women probably listening to this going, what did he just say? If you weren't paying attention, you probably, what did he, does he say he's doing a class on the menstrual cycle? I said, no, actually that would be the worst thing for me to do. Why? Because I've never had a menstrual cycle. <laughs> I don't have any ethos and credibility. Also, uh, I'm going to do a class on how to grow rich and thick hair. And if you were to see me right now, I'm actually bald. I don't have any hair. And so why in the world would I be the one teaching that? And so what we tell people is the first thing, if you want to have the influence, you have to have the ethos and the credibility. If you've taken a class and, you know, I had somebody call me one time, hey, I just got certified as a coach. Uh, can I help co-facilitate one of your classes? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's awesome. And I love that you've just begun the journey. But we're 27 years down this path and, you know, there, there's, a, there's a whole process to that. You know, I would never go to, hey, I took a class on, you know, I went and played intramural basketball. Hey, Michael Jordan or LeBron, can I go play and play on the Lakers? No, this just, that just doesn't, doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying I'm the Lakers. What I'm saying is that there's, there's a process to developing ethos. That's why we wrote a book. It helps create ethos. That's why we speak on stage. It helps to develop your ethos. Now, the challenge is, is that you don't own your ethos. People think they do. Your audience owns the ethos. So we've seen people that were ready, excited, they're credible. We, we, we gave them ethos and then they went up there and they bombed or they said something arrogant. And then we go, what? And I don't like that. And of course we pull our ethos back and we take it back. But when we understand that we don't own the ethos, one, it keeps us in a humble place of continually needing to earn it. But it also, we realize that it is the most important piece when it starts that. Now, so if I have the ethos with the client, they've hired me, that's good. Now I've got to keep it because they can pull it away anytime. They could fire me. They could say that wasn't valuable. So I better be good at what I'm doing. The next thing he talks about is pathos, which is the emotional appeal. So doctors have ethos, right? So you're, um, you are, you know, Dr. Ferguson. Great. So a doctor, if you were to tell me something about health, they'd pay attention to more than somebody who didn't have doctor in front of their name. There's an ethos there. The challenge though is a lot of doctors lack pathos, the emotional connection. Emotion, the pathos is what drives behavior. It's the piece that people uh, connect with. You know, doctor said, hey, you should lose weight and, and exercise more. Great, doc, thanks. I'll, I'll start next week. And, and that week never starts. And so even Johns Hopkins did a study on this where they said, well, maybe we need more motivation. It's a great book called Change or Die. And he said, well, we need more motivation. We'll tell people right after angioplasty, <clears throat> this is the CEO of Johns Hopkins University. And so they just cut a, crack open their chest cavity, rotor root their veins, and they're on the recovery bed um, from angioplasty. Something that's completely reversible through diet and exercise. And they said, well, maybe we just need to give them more motivation. So we'll tell them, if you don't change, you're going to die. We'll try to scare them. And what they found that nine out of 10 were back within two years for another surgery. And the reason was, is they went into denial about it. But there was another doctor, Dr. Dean Ornish, out of the University of San Francisco in a study they did with the Mutual of Omaha. Same study, angioplasty patients, $100,000 procedure, but they knew that there was a spiritual component, a values component, an emotional component, uh, all sorts of components, and they went in something along the lines of daughter walks in with the grandchildren. Grandfather is on, the, on his recovery bed in pain. says, Dad, you know, we almost lost you. That was scary. Well, you know, honey, you know I'm strong. No, 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 Dad. Like, we were really worried. Hey, Dad, you remember when I got married? course I do honey it was one of the happiest days of my life well dad I remember I was so scared and I was so nervous and I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing and then I looked over at you and you smiled at me and when you smiled at me I knew that I was doing the right thing and dad says well gosh you know, honey you're gonna make me cry you know I love you and the daughter says why well, I'm not doing that to make you cry dad I'm doing that if for you to realize if you don't change how you eat and exercise you're not gonna see your two grandchildren get married and that study generated 71% were not back after three years. And so that whole concept of change in how we influence things, pathos, 
is powerful. And the last part is logos. It's got to make logical sense, right? If it, I can mo move you, but if I don't have a plan, if I don't know where we're going with this, the logic behind it, then I'm emotionally moved to go nowhere. And that emotion will die off. And there's no logos left over. And now we're left with buyer's remorse or cognitive dissonance. And so those pieces, ethos, pathos, and logos are critical in that. And I better bring all three of those to the table. That's my answer. That's a great answer. So again, Amplify Your Influence book is coming out when? April 26th. April 26th. I know I'll get a copy. Yeah. And if you could say, who is your ideal person that you would consult with? In what sense? I can think of a lot. Um, who's your perfect client? If you had to dream up, or you can even have a series of like, who are the best people? Who are your, like, these are the people that you really love working with. We love working with legacy, what we call legacy leaders, people that have been very successful and now are asking bigger questions. Like, okay, we've got the money, we're doing great. And now what's left? Am I, am I, did I create an organization that cares about its people? Love working with them. I love working with innovative, young, new up and coming leaders. The ones that are, are constantly disrupting, that are looking and hungry to learn and saying, here's what we can, can you, can you help us fast track? And they understand that people matter. You know, there's, there's people that, that just look at people as numbers and pawns in a game. There are people that also look at them as critical components to that. And so if you understand that, that's, we love working with those folks because we can teach them and show them ways to fast track a lot of relationships and a lot of different things. Um, we love working with companies that, that are doing innovations, new things. And so, cause when, when they do, I also love highly intellectual companies, very practical because when you get, you know, they're going to resist everything that we talk about at first. And then once it clicks, they become the biggest advocates of it. And they be, and you know, like we work with, you know, engineers in the top engineering schools in the country and man, they're difficult at first, but once they get it, get out of their way, they are, they're changing the world. It's pretty fun. So I'm going to ask, so any company budget's going to be an issue. So is this something you, that you determine on a case by case basis, or do you have a set fee that you lay out? Or do you meet with someone and say, it's more of a, what do you need me to do? And then you individualize your, your fee schedule. Well, so the, I'm a keynote speaker first. And so, you know, we have speaker fees that, you know, range between 25 and $30,000 a speech. And so that, that's, that one's pretty simple. And we also do workshops, Amplify, which we take 12 people at a time. And those people come at $6,000 per person for a three day transformational workshop where we go through the whole science of this and recraft their story, their personal story, help them trans translate it to their value proposition in their business or whatever they're trying to do. And, you know, from a consultative basis, then we look at, um, we look at really the project of what we're trying to achieve, accomplish. You know, the, uh, you know, we joke a lot because when people say, Renee, was it cost to bring you in? My response is always to bring me in or not bring me in. And, you know, they'll usually chuckle and say, no, oh, good answer, Renee, I know how to bring you in. I said, well, I'd say that, honestly, if it costs you more to bring me in than to not bring me in, you're smart. You're not going to bring me in, so it costs you nothing. Why would you invest in something that offers no value? But if we're able to identify a problem that I could solve and the value of that solution far exceeds the cost of bringing me in, I think you'd agree, there's a cost in not solving it. And so why don't we sit down and figure out what we're trying to solve, what we're trying to achieve, the value of it, and then we'll make sure whatever my cost is way less than the value generated. And if I don't do it, you just don't pay me. That's unfair. And so that to me is my answer to that. And so it is based on the value created, but I also will guarantee it. And so it's, and it's one of those things that, and we don't take on projects that we can't solve. And a lot of times we're, we also, in our first meetings, we'll give people say, you don't need us. You just need to do X, Y, and Z. You really don't you just want you. And they're like, well, how much does that cost? I won't just call me tomorrow. I'll tell you how to do it. You know, it's like, well, there's, there's certain things that just are easy to solve or somebody say, you know what? That's not for me, but I do have somebody that can do it and I can re uh, uh, refer them over. And sometimes I'll just quarterback it and, you know, I don't get paid for it, but to me, uh, a referral is a really important thing and helping that client find a solution. And I've done that a ton of times with, with clients and they come back to me when they get new positions and say, all right, we want to bring you in for this. I say, great. And, you know, 27 years of doing that, you build a, a very strong equity in the community of, of, 
helping people and when your focus is around creating value, not just selling something, you got to sell. I mean, I'm, I'm a, a proponent of selling sell, sales to the heart, but it's an exchange of value. You have money. I have solutions. And if we can identify that my solution is more valuable than the money you have, then that's an easy exchange. I think that's a, a super valuable point. I couldn't help but think um, I was being mentored by this phenomenal physician who's, who's been doing this for probably 30 or 40 years. And I thought what I was doing, a particular procedural technique was great. And, but I keep every once in a while, I just hit this sticking point and he watched me do the procedure a few times. And then he literally moved the procedure needle a millimeter or two. And he just showed me how to find those landmarks. And then every single time after that flawless, but so the, the price of that, I would say priceless. So I think it's that sometimes I think people miss undervalue what that tiny micro adjustment can make. And it wasn't obvious until it became obvious because I wouldn't have seen it until it was pointed out. And I think that's the value of having someone objective come in like yourself. And again, little tiny adjustments can have those massive rippling repercussions throughout the entire company and really take you to the next level. So again, amplify your influence coming out April, 2022. Renee, thank you so much for joining and taking the time for this podcast. Thank you. It was fun. Challenging, but fun. Good. Good. <laughs> Tough questions. Have a great night. Have a good day. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again and see you next time.